think a lot about cookbooks and how they preserve memory. The materiality of a book is interesting. Who it includes and who it excludes, how it's changed over time. Welcome to Knowledge and Its Producers, a limited series from Maidan produced by me, N.A. Mansour. In each episode, we'll be talking to people who are at the forefront of knowledge production, typically away from the traditional power structures of education. We'll be talking to people who curate, who edit, who run research centers, who write, and more. My field is Islamic studies, and we'll be talking to people who fit into the study of Islam and the Muslim-majority world. But that doesn't mean they'll be Muslim themselves. It just means we don't have perfect terms for describing this big intersecting world. Not yet. The goal is to get a wide variety of people talking about different ways of accessing history, materiality, ideas, and more. To uplift the people we're interviewing and to inspire you. Today, we're talking to Sami Tamimi and Tara Wigley, who collaborated on the 2020 Palestinian cookbook, Palestine. What I find most interesting about Palestine is how it documents labors by going into the makers of different ingredients stories. So you get a sense of the economies behind the food as well as some recipes. So I always have an icebreaker question and I've been tailoring them to who I ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you guys is what is your favorite kitchen tool, which I realize is like asking you to pick a favorite child, maybe? <laughs> Not for me. I've got my favorite child and my favorite kitchen tool. And um, yeah, for me, it's got to be the the long tongs because I'm obsessed with charring aubergines directly on the flame. Um, so they're just super useful for, for turning them over in the flame. So that's what I would take to my desert island. Sammy? At the moment, it's a garlic crusher because I find it really, really kind of um, irritating when you have to take a, a knife and a chopping board for one clove of garlic that the recipe require. I'm okay with, you know, peeling the, 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 the garlic, but chopping it, it's uh, first of all, it's, it takes a long time to chop it, and I just need my garlic crusher, and it takes seconds. <laughs> Do you not do it? Because I do it in a pestle and mortar. Do you not? You don't. You don't use a pestle and mortar, Sammy. Uh, no, garlic brush. I love doing it with a bit of salt. Okay. Oh, controversial. Yeah, I um, I feel like my grandmother would slap me if I told her I used a garlic press. But <laughs> my hands. Do your hands burn, Sammy, when you handle lots of garlic? Uh, no, no. I uh, I actually. Mind like... when I handle lots of chili, which is a problem for making chapa. Yeah, chili or. If you do like artichokes or okra or stuff like that, that it's got a bit kind of uh, stinging, almost like liquid to it, then yeah, it burns. But uh, garlic, no. <laughs> I have it with tomatoes and red pepper, actually. So maybe everyone's just got their own color of things. Oh. I think everyone has like their own little sensitivities. <laughs> if I've just spent, I've spent the whole of lockdown with my rings wedged on my finger and, and they were sort of just quietly swelling up. I don't know why, because of too many cutting chilies or the heat or something. And yesterday, after how many months of lockdown, I finally got these things off. I feel kind of reborn. My My fingers are free. (laughs) So I want to congratulate you guys on the book. It's really stunning. I have the American edition, which of course has the lettuce salad on the front, which I think was an interesting choice. I counted it to the fact that, um, Sammy, have you ever been to the lettuce festival in Palestine? Yes, once. It's very. It's it's like being in a kind of mad world. <laughs> they do also um, a cauliflower festival as well somewhere. My sister said that you know they 
they just celebrate the organic Baladi cauliflower somewhere in Palestine and um, they, they do a festival for it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Italy, in Umbria, and they have festival for anything. <laughs> a place called Canara have a festival for onions and another place have a festival for snails and go on and on and on. Every, every little village have a festival for something. <laughs> I, I love the recipe on the um on the cover and I think it's really I think it looks beautiful and it's one of my favorite recipes but I think it's also really showcases kind of some of what we're trying to do with some of the recipes in the book in terms of taking ingredients that are sort of familiar but sort of presenting them in, in quite a sort of bold new way so I think it's a really a really kind of exciting dish to showcase. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw the book for the first time, because I'd only seen the British editions, yeah. um, the cover, and I got the American edition in the mail. I was struck by it because, I mean, exactly what I just said about the festival. It We were taught as kids that ches, that lettuce is such a big, you know, it's a big part of being Palestinian. If you eat your bulgur salads on like a leaf of lettuce, it's kind of this I mean, my dad used to say that you could always tell who the Palestinian at the table was when there's a big bowl of tabula because they reach for the lettuce. <laughs> yeah. I am Palestinian after all, Sammy. Uh, Tara also eats like that. I mean, she, she, she uses yeah, uh, I do. Uh, lettuce. I do. I, use it. I, use it. I always use them like a boat and sort of love partly. Kind in. of scooping the food. And I, I totally understand it. I mean, it's kind of, um, it makes sense. And also it's a good uh, vessel to, to use to handle food without touching the food but we, we didn't really have uh, lettuce so much at home i mean the only time we we had lettuces in the summer in the season and they just eat it like it's kind of a cucumber or an apple so mm-hmm. they don't they don't really use it in salads and stuff like that that was also something my father told us when we moved abroad from Palestine. actually he said that you could always tell who the palestinian kid on the playground was um, mostly like me and my brother, because we were eating the cucumber, the khyar, oh, yeah. like it was a, a lollipop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just crunch into it. Yeah. Um, I think there's, it's it's the same with our fruit and our produce. We eat it before we it gets home. So, I mean, you've referenced the fact that Tara has sort of become part of this world. And I like how in the introduction to the book, you set it up as, you know, that you two have very different roles in the book. So can you break that down for me a bit? Maybe Tara, you could go first. Um, yeah, so completely different roles and, and kind of different journeys towards this cuisine. So for Sammy, it's clearly a love letter home and a journey back to the, the food and the people and the place that, that makes him who he is and that he grew up with. So um, he bought all of that. And for me, it was an adventure into a new cuisine that I only discovered when I started with ten years ago, but the Palestinian food, my journey only started three or four years ago. So it was it was kind of really healthy, sort of youthful dynamic, uh, sort of sort of looking at things from from, uh, from different. And then and then there's things that I was able to kind of see and observe as an outsider. That Sammy, who's so kind of rooted to the to the people in the place and sort of just living it, it's just a very very different role so there was that whole side to it but then also the recipe testing and recipe development you know we did the recipes in the test kitchen in in Camden um, along with uh, another chef and Yotam is around and Sammy and me and and we're all kind of bringing our different backgrounds to to this dish and kind of what we want from it and Sammy 
initially was had a very uh, traditional list of recipes that he wanted to include in the book. And then over the course of two years of, of developing it, some of them remained, but but then a lot of the others shifted and changed and developed. And it was a sort of every recipe was a process and, and a journey in itself. So Sammy, what was it like going on this journey? I know you've written about Palestinian foods before in different capacities, mm-hmm. but what was what was this journey like for you? I mean, it, it, it's a very personal uh, kind of journey. It's uh, something that uh, I I kind of wanted to do for many years. I mean, I left I left home when I was seventeen, and then you know, uh, left the country when I was thirty, and I never kind of went back or thought about or going back. And but I kind of appreciate the whole fact that you know the food, the people, the place that I grew up in my family and it was just kind of me going back and cherishing and also thanking all of that you know the food the place the the landscape we met also new people that we we haven't i mean i didn't know from from before and it's a wonderful thing because palestinians are so kind of hospitality and kind of welcoming and they they are so warm and make you kind of part of them but what Tara said, it, it was kind of true because I went back to a very kind of uh, known things and uh, obvious from, you know, the, 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 the struggle to the way people talk to. And Tara will pick on little things that for me that are obvious, like uh, she, Tara will tell you probably the stories about the shushbarak and the, the ice cream that I had in Haifa where it's kind of yes, the ice cream yeah the the the, the, the whole kind of uh, me going back home it was uh, it was good that there there are another two pair of eyes that can actually see things in a, from a different angle from different kind of uh, point of view uh, which is complement the whole kind of experience but but yeah i mean yeah it was it was a good it was a good journey for for you know for, for both of us because we also had to learn how to be with each other. It's a different kind of, it was a different uh, environment for, for both of us, uh, but it still work as well. Yeah. And we were, we were lucky that we had the, we had the time, you know, we had, we had two years to write this book and we journeyed there together three times and I went another couple of times by myself. And so we really had that. It was, it was just a real privilege not to feel like we were kind of, dropping in and out and kind of getting the story. This is these are kind of people and places we hung out with over over a number of occasions. So that was just a really lovely thing to kind of have that time. Yeah, I just want to reference the, um, I opened the book and almost immediately actually I got to the ice cream page where the story <laughs> of, of Sammy and the ice cream is. And it's, uh, it's lovely. Um, I'll read a couple of lines from it. After supper in Haifa one night on our travels, Sammy stopped by an ice cream shop for something sweet opting for what Tara thought was the least delicious option, the hallucinogenic pink bubblegum flavored ice cream. <laughs> Sammy proceeded to skip happily down memory lane, remembering the holiday treats of his childhood. I love that so much. Yeah, but there, there were so many incidents like that. And, and you know, we were such a team and such a kind of, we were on such, often on the same journey, but then there'd be real moments. Uh, so the ice cream, another one was, watching Sammy eating knafe in Nablus and another one was shishbrat dumplings in in the um, in the refugee camp just outside Bethlehem. But with the knafe, for example, um, you know, 
watching Sammy kind of eat, inhale sort of more sugar than I would sort of consume in a month. And for him, he just sort of, he retreats <laughs> back to this moment of like pure Palestinian childhood. And every table in this little cafe, tiny, tiny kind of table with four mica tables, there's there's people who could be Sammy kind of 40, 40 years ago, sitting there, either boys by themselves or or sort of brother and sister or with their parents or or, or just kind of, People on their lunch break, and uh, and just as an outsider, to thinking this is just something I can I can observe. I will never. This will never be part of me. This is this this level of sugar, and and uh, is beyond my comprehension. <laughs> no, I mean it is obvious. It's like you know, this is kind of if you come from the Middle East and you don't love knafe, something is wrong with you. <laughs> or um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I chose the the. the bubblegum ice cream because of course it's tacky but this is the, the you know going back to memory lane and going back to childhood and of course i would choose it and i, I just remember tara's face like what are you doing why are you eating this stuff and you you know you go you know you go to naples and you go to the best cafe in in palestine and of course it's like you know you you see flashes of your life kind of passing through with, with every bite that you have. Sammy had 250 grams, but our friend Raya, who was driving us, had 500 grams of this stuff, and she just put it away, just like a demon. It was impressive. I was in awe. Yeah, but she, she's young. <laughs> <laughs> 250 grams is a lot, though. Half a kilo, though. It's um. I remember with my um, friend Nasser, when we were kids, we used to sit and have each a half a kilo and you know there's no running away from it you just order it and you have to eat it you can't leave it behind and you you never know when you're gonna get another half a kilo of knaf <laughs> also the way the way that Rara used to drive she always used to drive quite quickly and she used to take speed bumps at quite a terrifying rate but after the half a kilo of knafe she was going double speed it was even more terrifying all that afternoon oh my god <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know if, if Sammy, if you've ever heard this expression, if it's a newer one, my parents would always tell me when I ate a lot of anything, especially sweets, nafsak um, tayyib. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you eat well. But now they call me fat. <laughs> now they, yeah, the, friend, the family, they just kind of tease each other. So it's like, stop eating it. You're getting, you're, look at your belly with all of these things. It's just teasing each other all the time. <laughs> But you know, I mean, Arabs love love sweet, and I know kind yeah. of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they do also now all the sweet drinks as well, and fizzy, horrible. But they um, they love they love the the sugar. It's funny, yeah. It's these sweet drinks that get me back to childhood. Things like tamar hindi or like kerkede. Um, those are the things that I think of when I think of my childhood. And also, funnily enough, I think Arabs have a good appreciation mm-hmm. for bitter. Um, like, well, actually, no, because my parents gave me tea. They always gave it to me with sugar. But coffee is another sort of big part of our culture. But also just savory, because I mean, one, my, one of my favorite meals in, in the Palestinian cuisine is breakfast. This kind of complete savory banquet and yeah. just this spread of pickles and cheese and hummus and olive oil and zaatar. That for me is just delicious. But and I still have that sort of breakfast. Here, and my kids look at me like I'm completely crazy. They're sort of spooning their cornflakes into their mouth. And I'm like, one day, guys, one day you will see that I'm right and you're wrong. And you will come to the other side, the savory side. 
Well, that's the thing, though. Um, so everyone always talks about how big a deal Turkish breakfast is. And I've lived in Turkey and I speak Turkish and I like I've lived with Turks before and I'm always telling them and I've done this for them and they still don't seem to understand that that the Palestinian breakfast is really superior. But because of certain geopolitical things, we haven't had a chance to market our breakfast yeah. as well as they have. But one of, one of the recipes yeah. in the book that, that the people are really excited by is, is just the, the first recipe is for Hassan's easy eggs. And, and when Sammy brought it to the book, I sort of slightly thought, do we need to tell people how to, you know, soft boil eggs? But he said, trust me, trust me. And actually people have gone completely crazy for it. People who haven't paired eggs with za'atar and lemon and yeah. some spring onion. And again, the sort of thing that, that you can take for granted is what you should be having for breakfast. People are absolutely, totally excited about it. And I have I have friends who've, who've sort of, who've had a culinary epiphany discovering shatter and eggs as an as a option for breakfast. Completely addictive. I mean, also sometimes the, the dishes are so simple, but, you know, the, the quality of the ingredient that they kind of use or we use and just kind of... Yeah. Uh, uh, play a big part and you know it's not uh, they they give you quite a lot for breakfast like in terms of dishes number of dishes but uh, the all kind of um, things that they have on a daily basis and they have it in the house and they just mm-hmm. you know they make it uh, different every kind of day because you know you get bored after a while so, okay so you're gonna have shakshuka or you're gonna have scrambled eggs or you're gonna have all the eggs, it's just kind of... Um, but with Turkey, they, I think uh, Palestinians eat very quickly. So they don't want to sit for four or five hours eating breakfast. <laughs> uh, and in Turkey, they do that. They just sit and eat, and then they order another thing. Palestinians just eat very quickly and just leave. Oh, my God. Apart from apart from lunch at your family, Sammy, that, that goes on for four or five hours or just rolls into supper. Sammy, do you eat quickly? Uh, I don't eat quickly, but um, uh, I don't take a long time. It's just like uh, I enjoy eating, but I chew my food properly. <laughs> mm. I think ta- Tara takes a long time when we sit on dinner. Well, no, my, my problem is I, I don't stop. I, I just keep topping up my plate. My problem with the Palestinian table is that if there's food there, I find it very difficult to to stop eating. So Sammy's a grown-up, so he eats until he's full and then stops. And I'm like a child who just can't stop, and I just keep piling it on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. We were in one restaurant together in uh, in Nazareth, and I just sort of decided that I needed to, like, reorder the main course that I had. And Sammy's like, really? I mean, we've really had a lot of food. And then by the time it came again, I, I had actually begun to get a bit full and then had the sort of slight embarrassment of having to kind of then plow through this whole new plate of okra and halloumi and tomatoes, which I really didn't need. Yeah, and I've, I've got some, uh, some there's, I'm sure there's a name for it, of just, uh, just sort of like pathological overeating. Um, but no, Sam, Sammy's, oh yeah, it feels like Sammy's the grown-up. You can just sort of stop when he's done. <laughs> so the eggs in particular, um, I actually wrote about this in my essay. My grandfather taught my mother, who's not Palestinian, how to make these very early on, the same exact thing. And it's one of these things, like you said, Sammy, it's like, it's very instinctive that you think, mm-hmm. oh, za'atar and eggs pair well together. And we would mm-hmm. have them in our lunchbox. Like, yeah. Or when you get kayak from the, the kakche, he like has he has boiled eggs, he has za'atar, and he has the kayak, right? And you just roll yeah. it all into one and you make your sandwich and you walk down the road on to school. Yeah. And it's, 
it's just one of these flavor combinations that's really hard to explain. And I think, Tara, when you said that thing about the savory, I think of Zatlad. When I think of Zatlad, I just think of umami. It's it's the savory flavor in like one packet. It's 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 our version of MSG. It's It is MSG. I, I went on holiday last week to Suffolk and then halfway through I ran out of Zatlad. I was like, well, holiday's over. I mean, it's just time to go back. I just, like life just got less fun when I didn't have Zatlad to sprinkle over every meal. Like it definitely is MSG. Well, it's not, obviously. But, but yeah, the combination at the moment of having little mini cucumbers in my morning breakfast with everything else. And the combination, again, of cucumbers and zata just reminds me so much of the breakfast we had together in Palestine. Well, the cucumbers are another thing that I find so... Well, not the cucumbers, but vegetables. I hope you can hear me turning the pages of the book. Um, Palestinians love vegetables. If you don't have a, a like a stack of like cucumbers and tomatoes and onions and mint and things to eat with your labna in the morning that's not <laughs> breakfast you need yeah. like we're very mediterranean i find and i love that about the book and that's why i love the fact that on the cover just to return to it i'm also a book historian so i loved looking at the physical book and like handling it and looking at the binding but the cover a it looks like the palestinian flag but b it's just it's the vegetables are what makes palestinian cuisine cuisine yeah, I mean, I grew up not having so much meat and fish. It was all about the vegetables and the pulses and the grains. And uh, vegetables are the star of the show here, and not you know so much the meat. Nowadays, people eat a lot of a lot more meat. I mean, even in the Middle East as well, and Palestinian definitely. But back then, you know, meat was expensive, and fish was not really kind of close by in Jerusalem, and. Uh, People relied on, you know, foraging and greens and all and things that, they, you know, they farmed uh, in their kind of plot, plot of land uh, or near, nearby. And that was also wonderful where, you know, seasonality kind of play a big part where people really kind of celebrate seasonality. And if something comes out of, you know, in the season, you see it everywhere and people buying it and doing the best out of it. And that, you've got to just kind of see it to believe it, don't you? Like when, when something comes into season, you know, it's it's not just one table piled high of aubergines or sort of the, the jute leaves. It's just every single table along the road has just got hundreds of these things on. And it's it's just beautiful when the green almonds are there and there's just this glut. And and it's sort of, yeah. you know, people, people know that, that, that this exists and they know about seasonality, but when you actually see it, it's like, whoa, it really is better than each to dinner. Yeah, yeah, it's something that I always miss about being in Palestine is that it was very organic to follow sort of, you know, what your neighbor was selling you, you know, re like, it could be apricots, it could be lettuce, but also foraging was a big part of our lives. Um, Did you guys go foraging at all? Um, um, not really. We did a little bit with Vivian, but but not actively. Although Sam, Sammy talks about it a lot in terms of memory. Sammy, what was it like growing up foraging? Uh, yeah, yeah, you you go out and you you forage for a thing. You know what to pick, and you just bring it back home. I mean, we used to just do it also with my father sometimes. Just give you a bag, and you just tell you what to pick, and you pick it and put it in the bag, and just take it home. And then the same evening, you have a nice meal, which whether it's chobeze or or kind of. Um, different type of bitter leaves or yeah there's quite a lot and each season have its own kind of uh, something to give you to 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 feed you 
And people still do that, which is really lovely to see. Growing up in Jerusalem, seasonality was, you know, going to like Jaffa Gate and uh, see all these uh, ladies from the little villages coming down with baskets of stuff. And it's all seasonal. It's stuff that they grow in their backyard or in their garden. And they come to Jerusalem to, to sell it to the crowd. And people just kind of, kind of queue for it. And the hustle and bustle. And, you know, they kind of want to give you the best price and also, you know, the best quality of whatever they're selling. They're, they're all kind of um, older lady normally. And they always kind of stuff the money kind of in their in their side pocket and with the embroidered belts. With yes, that you can um, put the money in. That's, yeah. Okay, so I think we could easily talk about food for like two hours, three hours, four hours. <laughs> so I want to ask some more questions about the process. Actually, let's go straight back to the beginning. Tara, what do you remember? What the inception of the book was like? Who brought the project to who? Sammy, I think, has been been wanting to write this book for probably a decade. So it was it was absolutely Sammy's Sammy's kind of brainchild and his baby that he he was sort of wanting to give birth to for years. And I've been part of the Ottolinghi team for just under a decade, so involved in in the kind of the writing side of books. And so yeah, I was I was kind of given the opportunity to do it with Sammy. And initially, I was nervous to be so out of my comfort zone because I'd come off the back of sort of book like Simple which is very much my language and sort of world that I that I knew and Palestinian cuisine is intimidating to an outsider who's so nervous about sort of asking the wrong questions or getting into into kind of conversations which one's ill-equipped to know what's causing offence and which questions are right and wrong and after a lot of kind of research and listening and sort of trusting that actually that also realising that actually a cookbook is a really useful way for other people who are similarly concerned about what questions they can and can't ask to actually, it's a really kind of safe space to enter into this world and this cuisine and people that, that one doesn't know about and wants to, wants to find, out, find out more. So it was just a really organic and very long process in the best, in the best sense because we weren't rushed for time. So the whole thing kind of really evolved over the course of, of two years with the writing and the recipes and the travels and 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 all of it. Yeah, I mean, also the time, the timing of the making the book, where you know, before a few years back, you think there were no really Palestinian cookbooks around, and also uh, coming, you know, this whole kind of almost like a, I don't know what to call it, conflict because it comes from the Otolenghi brand to come up with a Palestinian cookbook. But now we have all these wonderful uh, Palestinian cookbooks around, and it's yeah. it's almost like you feel uh, we felt like uh, they uh, paved the way to Palestine, which is a wonderful thing. I remember when I suggested the idea to the publisher, and I was like, oh, they're probably gonna say no, and they just loved the idea, and it's like I was so happy about it, and but at the same time, I'm really surprised that they they actually kind of loved the idea of it. But people are, people are so ready, aren't they, to sort of move beyond the idea of just there being kind of homogenous Middle Eastern food. And people are so 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 ready and willing and keen to kind of zoom in and 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 sort of look at the geography and the cuisine and and the place. And again, a cookbook is just a really delicious and great way of of doing that. 
I um I was going to ask about the landscape of Palestinian cookbooks, but you beat me to it, Sammy, because the last couple of years have seen books like Karim Kassis's The Palestinian Table, Yasmin Khan's uh, uh, Zaytun, and also my personal one of my personal favorites, which was one of the first, was The Gaza Kitchen by Leila Haddad. I have the first edition, and I love it so much because it, even though it's about Gaza, I think it it tells the story of um, the complexities of people think that Arab food can be collapsed into one category, as, as you referenced, uh, but it, it really can't because there's so much geographical variety, but also so there's different history and the history affects sort of what dishes are produced where and why people, you know, why Gazans have avocados. That's the result of, of politics. Like why, why two dishes like Kushari and Jaddara aren't really related. That's that's sort of what history is telling us now. Like there are all these different politics and, and history playing into it. And then there's geography, like I mentioned. So it's been interesting to see not only Palestinian cookbooks become highlighted, but also um, we've seen interest in Cypriot food, Armeni food. There's a new book coming out from your publisher about East African food uh, through the lens yeah. of different grandmothers by Hawa Hassan. And it's it's exciting to see these this this yeah. different approach to cooking. One thing I wanted to also emphasize is that it's not just a cookbook like Leila Haddad's book, like Yasmin Khan's book. It has all these different sections in it that, um, and you referenced this earlier, Sammy, these little profiles and bits of history. Can you tell me a bit more, Sammy, about where that came from? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you can't really write a book called Palestine and not talk about a bit of the history, a bit the a background, but also from the beginning we were clear that uh, it's not going to be a story of me or a, a story. We wanted, I wanted to include a lot of kind of uh, Palestinian that live in Palestine. Uh, some of them related to food. Most, uh, some of them are not, but uh, they are a, a good good example of people that kind of. Uh, uh, live and they're full of positivity and hope and in a humbling way, which is very important to 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 show and to talk about because the word Palestine and Palestinian and it gets quite a lot of black and white and there's quite a lot of grain between where this is what we wanted to show. Um, I come from there and you know we're not all terrorists and. Uh, uh, we don't just walk around stabbing people. It's, we just wanted to live our own life with all the difficulties and do the best out of it. And this is where these characters kind of make the book because people really relate to all these little stories like Vivian or Islam in the refugee camp. Or, or, yeah, there are people that kind of really inspire you. You just sit down and talk about their lives. And also, we were really um, keen at every stage for this book not to be at all sort of sepia tinged. And and I, I think lots of cookbooks, not not just Palestinian cookbooks, lots of cookbooks can I find have a slight kind of sepia tinge of, of the stories of kind of grandmothers handing down recipes. And those are beautiful books, and we absolutely love them. But that was very much not the book that that we're writing, and we wanted it to be really contemporary about what's happening uh, in Palestine today. And almost sort of hopefully without casting judgment, just showing these windows of kind of this is happening today, right here, right now, not kind of in the field 50 years ago. Because people forget that life is going on today or or they sort of hear the news story about Gaza or the refugee camp and then aren't able to sort of imagine 
a happy world and story taking place in these otherwise bleak sort of contexts. So, for example, Islam in the refugee camp, you know, she's she's living a really, really tough, bleak life in lots of ways, but you meet her and hang out with her and you, you don't meet you don't meet anyone who's who's infused with more joy and doing more kind of enterprising, exciting things with food. And we just want to, as Sammy said, kind of move beyond this this black and white to sort of show that you can have joy in in a kind of hopeless setup. And for people to kind of read it and be excited to go to Palestine and go and meet Islam and take one of her cooking courses or go and seek out Vivian Sansor in her seed library. And, and it's all happening you know, right here, right now, today. That's something that's very difficult as a Palestinian to explain to people is that, yeah, life can be extremely difficult. I mean, it's it's just, it's, it's a very different world. And what I end up telling people is, but the human instinct is to try to create happiness and normalcy. And that's really what, you know, A, people shouldn't be praised for this because that's a quality that we all have. And no one wants to be sort of praised for doing the necessity of, of living their lives. But I mean, you want to highlight, it's difficult because you want to highlight the injustices, but at the same time, you you want to owe people their normalcy, which is what I think a lot of people simply want, or also their extraordinariness, like 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 Vivian Sansur or Islam. Um, and you know, there's also the story of the Tent of Nations in here. And I mean, another thing you said about this sort of being not sort of sepia toned, which I think is very interesting because one thing I've been doing as I've been writing about your book is I've been going through photo archives, not my own, going through online repositories and finding pictures of the way people, you know, people with stone mills in Palestine and all this stuff. And I've been gathering photos and talking to photo archivists just for fun, really. And the thing I keep thinking is, oh, not much has it's weird because my brain goes in the direction of not much has actually changed because there's still a girl learning how to cook from her mother. And that's how I learned how to cook was by watching my mother. And then also that little girl in that photo probably went on and created what her mother would assume was a cardinal sin by updating a dish or by swapping out ingredients. I mean, the first time I, I, I can't remember the first time I, um, I took the, the dish malfouf, which is stuffed uh, fingers of uh, cabbage with rice and spices and maybe meat. And the first time I sort of did it more contemporary, my mother, who's not Palestinian, I'll remind you, <laughs> nearly had a fit. She was like, I don't understand why you're doing it this way. Like, why are you modernizing? <laughs> she called it modern. And I remember we had this long conversation about how food changes from generation to generation. And But then again, it's such a big responsibility that Sammy... And I sort of felt, because when you're sort of modernising stroke, playing around with the dish, you know, you're not just doing that when it's, when it's a Palestinian dish because of the link to, to identity and land. And again, again, as an outsider, I think it's really difficult to understand the depth of that link until you actually go and, and meet the guy who sits under the olive oil tree to protect it or the farmer or the distributor and the link, the link between yeah. produce and land and history and identity. So for us, there was such a strong sense of responsibility, but, but also not wanting to reproduce the recipes that are in other books. We didn't want to have recipes for traditional tabulae because you couldn't find them elsewhere. So we wanted to sort of quote play around, but also bearing in mind that this is not just playing around because of that link. Um, so yeah. I think you guys did both. I think you guys managed to preserve certain dishes in the states that, well, I mean, it's also so hard, and I'm sure you guys saw this. I'm sure that you guys had the, this this issue of, of Palestine is so 
it, it's such a small mm-hmm. plot of land, mm-hmm. but it's so diverse. So we all make things different. I mean, we've all had that fr- fight, right, Sammy, with someone from a different part of Philistine, where they're like, why did you make this dish with this spice? Or why did you put um, this vegetable in this dish? And I'm like, well, I... Um, yeah, I mean, they, they do. I mean, it's still, you know, you find things kind of... Uh, particular kind of ingredients or dishes or way of cooking still to the day. But, you know, because the land is shrinking and people integrating each other, the, it, you see it less and less. And this is something that kind of will um, one day not get lost, but get kind of muddled. Mm-hmm. But uh, modernizing a, a, a dish, I mean, the, the whole kind of feeling of respons- responsibility and uh, but then we sat down and talked about who's actually going to buy the book because most yes. Palestinian that I know, women, for example, they already learn the dishes by heart, so they don't need yeah. really a cookbook. Yeah. Realistically, most of the people that are going to buy the, the book is, are Westerns or European, Americans, Canadian, yeah, so on and on. But it's also nice to, to, to hear from Palestinians that, you know, they buy the book and love cooking from it because uh, they, although they know the dishes, they also um, happy to try new things, which is really kind of uh, surprised me in a way. Uh, it's true. And again, it's, it's us slightly kind of wanting to have a cafe and eat it because on one hand, it's very much a practical book for the busy home cook who lives outside Palestine, but on the other hand, the opinion of a Palestinian that like, means obviously so much to us. And Sammy and I got an email today from Vivian, who was talking about a buddy of hers who was just so excited by this book that he just was really connecting with the Palestinian, and and that sort of it meant so much that it was kind of getting the getting the high five from him. But yeah, just every every recipe, every story, every day was was us kind of holding this thing in in uh, in balance. Yeah. yeah. A friend of mine told me that too. He's Palestinian Jordanian and, and is now um, has been displaced and lives abroad. And he was telling me that he uses the book and he likes all the dishes that aren't the things we learned. I think what me and him talked about was the fact that we felt like the book, like I said earlier, it kind of represents the way we cook, which is both super. It's weird. My mom's always saying that like the way that I cook is is Palestinian modern, but I also know that I can be mm. super conservative about mm. dishes and the way they're cooked. And I think this book kind of falls in the bound in the middle yeah because we're also hoping that the people who haven't got a palestinian book yet is that there are the definitive kind of classic palestinian dishes and people will really get excited about chicken musakan with the sumac onions or the makluba the upside down savory rice cake so so you know we're hoping to kind of reach the kind of the definitive palestinian book also for the people but but hopefully there's room on everyone's bookshelf for all the books out there because they're they're all so different. Everyone's got their different reason for, for telling their story, whether they are preserving the recipes for their daughters if they're living outside of Palestine or Yasmin Khan with her activist background, who I think is also telling a lot of stories. So I think I think hopefully people can have space for all of them. So can I ask a difficult-ish question about the challenges of writing this book? Yeah, no, it's kind of... Uh... We always say it. It's like words are really important and words are so loaded when you talk about this part of the world, which is Palestine and Israel. And we wanted to tell the story and not to shy from telling the story. But you have to be careful with, you know, what words you use. And Tara had 
I mean, she was in agony all the time and going over and over the text and then kind of changing words. And uh, because you don't want to, um, you don't want to show any anger, first of all, and uh, you want to tell the story as it is. And you want people to relate to the story as well and to what's happening. And Tara is kind of uh, the, the person to take credit for that because she, she did an amazing job thanks Amy <laughs> yeah I mean there are so many challenges because I mean I, you know all authors care so much about their book but it's it's it, you know just the fact that it's a tourism doesn't prevent one saying it like caring so much and feeling such a weight of responsibility and wanting it to be just this absolute kind of knockout beautiful book that does justice to everything that is going on and everything that Sammy is and the journey he's been on and and then also sort of personally Sammy and I we're we kind of we're, we've got such different sort of energy levels or temperaments and and generally that that kind of worked really well because we have this sort of constant tussle but then it's a challenge to co-author a book because by nature anyone who's involved with either words or food is very controlling like that's that's why we choose words and food because we can control these things and and you've got two people working together for two years both trying to control the narrative and the recipe and that's gonna definitely sort of pose challenges but but always kind of trying to remember that you're on the same side and that you're yeah you're absolutely on the same side but for sure there was kind of one or two like big bust-ups of just like nervous energy either during the shoot or on travels or sort of you know putting things together so hopefully the book's kind of all the better for it but yeah we had to hug it out a couple of times yeah so I have a question, another question, which is like asking you all to choose children, which I remember from the, the eggplants in the cookbook, which we'll let the listeners have to wonder about. Tara has already decided what her favorite recipe is, but do you guys have favorite recipes from the book? I mean, we, we've talked about it already, but one of my favorite recipes is for sure the, the gem lettuce salad that's on the cover because it's just got so many different elements the burnt aubergine yogurt and the smacked cucumber and parsley and mint and then completely obsessed by the shatter the fermented chili paste and also the way that I cook I'm a real batch cooker so I've got everything kind of ready in the fridge which lasts kind of three or four days so I can just kind of put together this instantly delicious dish without actually having to kind of chop at the time um, but also the chicken masakan I think is a great entry point for people who are new to the cuisine because I think it really showcases how simple Palestinian cooking can be and how delicious like it's it's there's nothing kind of complex or tricksy about it but the result is just completely mind-blowing it's uh one of my favorite dishes too I mean um we make it differently in my family because we don't eat chicken uh bizarre for 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 Palestinians not to eat a particular type of meat but we don't I don't me and my father don't eat chicken and we're from Tulkaram which is very well known from Sakhan so no. seeing it in there made me happy because I have all these memories of making it and my mother's innovation and my father's innovation, which they borrowed from a friend of ours when we lived in Qatar, was to roll it like a burrito so that the it gets soggy on the inside, but then it gets crispy on the outside once you stick it in the oven. Yeah. So I loved seeing it as well. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sammy? What are your favorite dishes in the cookbook, which again is like asking you to pick a child? It's a, it's a really difficult Kind of that's the um, because I grew up on eating and loving most of these dishes. So every time I cook a dish, I kind of fall in love with it. But then, <laughs> but then I move on. It's uh, there isn't one particular. I mean, my mother's uh, cauliflower fritters 
uh, probably one of the dishes that I love to eat. But uh, I'm also happy to to choose uh, mjadara, for example, or mshatan yeah. uh, any day. Yeah. You know, I mean, yesterday I made mtabal, which is uh, again, it's, you know, how not to fall in love with burned aubergine with a bit of tahini and lemon and garlic. For me, it kind of uh, shifts from one mood to another. Yeah. One day I, I love frike, the next day I'm loving, you know, the damsachan again. So I, I can't really choose one dish that you can just say, this is the ultimate dish that I want to choose from Palestine and just kind of say, this is my favorite yeah. dish. <laughs> Sammy, you need to have the uh, the cucumber and tahini soup because it's so hot where you are. I That's know. Delicious. That's like a lovely alternative to gazpacho. I know. And we have quite a lot of cucumber in the garden, so we just to do that. But, you know, give me knafe any day, I would eat it. I would feel <laughs> totally guilty. Whenever I take people from who haven't grown up in the Arab world to go get knafe, either in Amman or Jerusalem, they're always surprised that there's lots of old men eating it either together or on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always trying to explain to them that like eating alone isn't a bad thing. It's this, yeah. this weird idea from, 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 from somewhere. I would sit next to older men all the time eating knafe on, on the sidewalk in Amman when I was living in Amman. I completely agree. And it, actually, if someone said to me, like, what's your definition of kind of hope? Like, or, or what's your definition of like a happy sight? I just think of an old person sitting on a bench in the UK eating ice cream by themselves. And I just, because I think of ice cream as being such a kind of celebratory thing you do together, but to kind of actively choose that to do by yourself, to do it by yourself in a park bench. I just think, I just think it's beautiful. I just absolutely love it. So it's, it's the kind of canafe equivalent. Yeah. I mean, also reminds me of my grandfather who used to take me on his shoulders to go eat kinefe. And and I'm sure he did it when I wasn't around, too, because he he valued himself as a human being and wanted to treat himself when he was out walking. Uh, It also is hard to explain to people all the water, why there's water on the table and not coffee. And I'm just like, well, because you want to feel the sweet. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We were were given very strict instructions that we weren't allowed to drink coffee. The the guy who was doing it was very strict about that. (laughs) It seems like the reception to the book has been amazing because Sammy keeps posting. F- well, I mean, Sammy, you lost all your Instagram posts a while ago. I understand, yeah. but you've been posting all these wonderful pictures that people send you. I know, and they're wonderful to see as well because some of them they really kind of make the, the effort and cook all the time, and they send me almost every week pictures of the dishes they cook. It's uh, it's a, such a kind of humbling and wonderful thing to see, but also it's an indication of you know that they love the book, they love the recipes, they they love the narrative of the book, and they connect to the recipes and they want to cook more and more. And because I mean the recipes really work for them, and there are new flavors as well for many people. And it's amazing. There's a couple of people who are real completists and. They are picking every single recipe in the book, and uh, it's just impressive. It's absolutely amazing. It's like a full-time, full-time job. I want to kind of do an article and look into this world of people who are kind of they are they, they, they just literally start at the beginning and they do every single recipe. <laughs> so again, I want to congratulate you on the book because it's absolutely stunning. It's beautifully bound. The photos mm. are stunning, and I think looking through the book, you've made some really interesting choices on, on what to highlight from Palestine itself. It feels very real to me. It feels like where I mm-hmm. grew up and where I traveled a lot as a kid, and all these little details. Um, it's, it's amazing, and I, I, again, congratulations, and I hope the reception continues to be good. 
to close, I wanted to ask you, what are you guys currently working on? What projects do you have on your, are you guys on vacation? Are you guys, what are you doing? We are, we are both on holiday, I think. Um, yeah, I've got three kids at home on, on some holiday. So I'm doing bits and bobs of work, but I'm, I'm still in sort of slight lockdown mode and just crossing everything for September return to school so that, so I can get my ass back to work and get my brain back in gear. Sammy? Yeah, I'm, I'm on holiday or semi-holiday in, in Umbria in Italy. I have a place here and just taking it easy, cooking a lot and eating as well. <laughs> we have a few friends, so I kind of uh, cook things and take them down. We have them for lunch or supper and uh, inviting people around. And, uh, we have a few friends coming to visit, which is really lovely. Uh, so I'm going to be here until the end of August, probably. Oh, nice. That's lovely. Future projects, I mean, we, we still, I mean, I'm still waiting because London is still kind of uncertainty. But I, I have a new kind of idea that uh, maybe uh, I, I can't really talk about it. But uh. and, in, and in terms of the book, Sammy and I, sometimes we dream about someone picking this up and making a, a kind of Netflix-style documentary because I think it would be such a great thing to do like 10 episodes on on the sort of people that we profile the people and places we profile in the book and then linking them to recipes and again I just I think I think people are so kind of hungry and and keen to to sort of jump in and find out more and meet people who are in Palestine today and so we're waiting for that call <laughs> that would be cool I would love to be involved <laughs> let's do it um, yeah Let's do it. Let's go and eat everywhere that we love in Palestine. Um, Anyway, thank you guys uh, and congratulations. Thank you for listening. And again, a big thank you to Sammy and Tara. You can follow me at namonsour26 on Twitter. And you can follow the Maidan at the Maidan on Twitter. The production team includes Micah Hughes, who you can follow at Micah A. Hughes and Ahmed Tekeliolo. Most importantly, our audio editor, who does the post-production work, Nick Gunty. A big thank you to the Loose Foundation. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Be sure to subscribe or follow the Maidan on social media for upcoming episodes and more in the Maidan's repertoire of podcasts.